This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to our newly renamed show, Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm the other lawyer in Southern California. I'm Jay Craig Williams. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob, I know you write several. And I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law and uh, contribute to Law.com's legal blog, Watch. Uh, Well, today we're going to talk about uh, issues of uh, uh, the First Amendment and freedom of the press uh, and uh, how they play out uh, in the courts with some particular reference to the, the Scooter Libby trial that's going on now, and also uh, talk about uh, how the Supreme Court has uh, addressed some of these issues. Well, when the news media has been able to shoehorn in the Libby trial from the Anna Nicole coverage, we've seen that it's been on a bit of a roller coaster ride. Uh, Libby, who was uh, who's Cheney's chief, former chief of staff, is on trial in Washington on charges that he lied to investigators and a grand jury investigating the leak of information that Valerie Plame was a covert CIA cooperative. Knowingly identifying a covert agent is illegal. One of the reporters from the New York Times, Judith Miller, was placed in jail for not disclosing her source during the government probe. Libby's now charged with perjury, obstruction, and lying to the FBI. Wait a minute, Craig. Did something happen to Anna Nicole? Back to Valerie Plame. Uh, this uh, story all started when Robert Novak, a columnist, uh, disclosed Ms. Plame's identity uh, publicly in a column that he wrote back in July of 2003, just days after the New York Times had published an op-ed by uh, Ms. Plame's husband, Joseph Wilson. Uh, Wilson attacked uh, the Bush administration by stating that they uh, had willfully distorted intelligence to build the case for invading Iraq. Well, there have been many that testified before a grand jury. I don't think Anna Nicole was one of them, but um, Libby was singled out. In October 2005, Libby was indicted on charges of perjuring himself before a grand jury, making false statements to investigators and obstruction of justice, though he was not one of the leaks to Novak, who first disclosed Plame's identity as a covert agent. Well, from he said to she said to jail time to journalists testifying, the the trial has been uh, something to watch and... Uh, freedom of the press and freedom of speech, as it's implicated in that, is is at the is at the forefront of that case, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, the various shield laws in the 31 states or so that have them have also come up in the trial. Shield laws are essentially laws that protect journalists from being forced to disclose confidential information in legal proceedings. They protect the rights of journalists from revealing confidential sources, their notes other unpublished information, and can even be applied in both criminal and civil hearings. And that's what we're going to talk about today uh, with our guests. Um, I'd like to first welcome our, our first guest, Ed Carter. Ed is an assistant professor in communications at Brigham Young University. Uh, he recently analyzed more than 390 cases from from uh, the Supreme Court on, under the last three chief justices to determine uh their their uh, the degree of their protection or, or non-protection of, of minority speech. His findings were published in the latest issue of the Journalism and Mass Communications Quarterly, the top academic journal in journalism. And uh, he found that uh, 
Chief Justice Rehnquist had a had a majoritarian view of freedom of speech. Uh, Mr. Carter is also an attorney and a journalist with an interest in the intersection of communication and law. He has a, a law degree from the J. Reuben Clark Law School and is licensed to practice in Utah. Uh, welcome to the show, Ed Carter. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, Bob, our next guest is Mark Obi. Mark is a director of the Carnegie Legal Reporting Program at the Newhouse School in New York. Since 2004, he's been a full-time faculty member at Newhouse, teaching magazine editing, new news reporting and writing, and media law. Professor Obi's been a legal journalist for more than 24 years. His most recent work has appeared in Inc. and Slate. Before he joined the Newhouse faculty, he was executive editor of The American Lawyer, the monthly magazine covering lawyers and law firms across the country and the world. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, let's start with uh, let's start with the Libby trial. And uh, uh, is uh, is is Libby being made a scapegoat here? Uh, what's your take on what's going on here? And uh, Mark, let's start with you. Well, this is one of those trials that uh, looks different depending on which pair of goggles you're wearing. The left has its own set of goggles, and and to the left, this trial is about the Bush administration's conduct of the war and the media's. Uh, the media's uh, assistance uh, in, in helping promote the war in the early days. And to the right, this is about a runaway prosecutor who took a non-crime and, and persecuted a, uh, an administration official where, uh, with the reporters just getting dragged along for the ride. So very opposed, two really uh, directly opposing view, views of what this is about with the press um, having its own view about what's gone wrong in all of this. Well, yeah, I noticed that Scooter Libby wasn't anywhere in, in anything you mentioned there. Well, he's almost a, uh, a prop, in, in my view. He's a, uh, uh, he has been um, uh, less important in the minds of a lot of observers of this trial than the, than the celebrity journalists and whether the vice president would testify and what sorts of dirt has come out about the uh, planning of the war. So uh, we, we sometimes forget that somebody has been accused of, of obstructing the legal process, which is a serious offense, and or somebody whose liberty is at stake, which is, of course, a very serious stake. He, but he, he isn't uh, particularly uh, well-known to the public, and I think that hasn't really changed in this trial. Speaking of well-known people, how is it that Karl Rove and some of the other people that testified in front of the grand jury didn't end up in the defendant's seat? Well, I think that that just goes to the uh, the question of whether a crime was committed, uh, a, a substantive crime was committed at all in this case, and obviously the prosecutor didn't feel that he could bring such a case for the actual leak. Mr. Libby's testimony uh, got him in trouble, and and evidently the other witnesses were careful enough or truthful enough to avoid that same problem. So uh, part of what's made this trial uh, so alluring, I guess, is has been the parade of media people testifying, and you know, uh, there've been a number of references in in the media to uh, the fact that it's uh, somehow exposing the kind of the the seamy underside of of uh, of journalism in our nation's capital. Uh, Ed Carter, what's what's your take on that as as both a lawyer and a professor of, of journalism? I think this is every media lawyer's nightmare in a lot of ways, because as you referred to, you have journalists 
who are testifying on both sides of the case, both for the prosecution and the defense. And so it comes across looking as if the journalists are investigative agents of either the prosecutors or the defense attorneys. You know, they're providing information to substantiate claims being made by one side or the other. And that seems to me one of the primary fears of a lot of uh, not only journalists, but media lawyers and other people who have argued in favor of shield laws and a, a reporter's privilege. Well, what what about the issue that, you know, these a number of these people who are testifying are uh, are journalists who, who at one point or another uh, promised confidentiality, uh, and they are now in there on the stand talking about the very things that were once made confidential. I know that some of the sources have supposedly released them from their promises of confidentiality. Other cases, other situations have changed. Uh, is Mark, is this case about uh, confidentiality? What are the implications for uh, journalist confidentiality in this case? Well, of course, the uh, the early stages of the case featured the Judith Miller and, and Matt Cooper uh, clash with the prosecutor, and and while that may not have changed uh, many people's interpretation of the, the the state of the case law on on the reporter's privilege, it I, I believe it has emboldened. I think a lot of media lawyers see it as having emboldened those who would subpoena reporters to to drag them into. Disputes. Um, if, if there was a, a uh, flashing yellow light against that sort of thing before, now it's pretty much a green light in federal court, and that's um, that has led to a lot more subpoenas around the country in lots of different kinds of cases, way beyond national security, and that that concerns all of us in the press and, and in the, and the media bar. Well, we see that um, some of the presidential. Uh, People and the vice president and the president are not taking this stand. How do you think that plays out in the realm of uh, Scooter Libby's defense? I was a little surprised that the vice president didn't take the stand, considering that Libby also didn't. Um, but uh, Mr. Libby has has uh, top-notch lawyers who obviously made a strategic decision about what they did and didn't need to do to to uh, argue their case to the jury next week. And um, and and far be it for me to, to question their their judgment. Um, their job is not to try the politics of this. Their job isn't to worry about the media's uh, prerogatives. Their job is to get their client off. And so uh, they clearly thought that the less said, the better. Well, what does this case tell us about uh, the the state of the so-called journalist privilege in this country? Uh, I mean, obviously. Uh, we're, we're, we've all heard of Brandsburg versus Hayes, and, and we, we know that uh, uh, there's certainly a lot of debate as to exactly what that case means, uh, uh, although uh, the Seventh Circuit Judge Posner would say that there's no debate whatsoever. But do, does this uh, case uh, teach us anything about the state of the privilege? Uh, Ed Carter, let me ask you that question. Sure. I think we're still processing exactly what this does mean. We know that the Supreme Court denied certiorari, uh, you know, a, a while back, and so they're not interested in revisiting Brandsburg, at least not right now. Uh, I think on the local levels, this is really where we're seeing this play out. Uh, you know, for example, I've been involved in a couple of efforts here in Utah, and uh, the Attorney General of Utah 
actually got very much behind a shield law proposal. Utah's one of the few states that doesn't have a reporter's privilege in statute. And uh, But the legislators uh, really did not look kindly on this. Um, they watered down the proposal, and eventually, uh, you know, we had to kill it. And so there is still a movement right now to go for a rule of evidence that would um, provide somewhat of a privilege. But I think you're seeing this play out, as I said, on the local level, and it just depends on uh, sort of the local uh, you know, situation and, and conditions, I guess. Other states that already have shield laws in place maybe are are in somewhat of a better condition, but I, I agree with Prof Professor Obi in that we are seeing more subpoenas. Uh, I, I think we're seeing that happen all over the country, and that uh, you know that that can't be a good thing for journalists in terms of uh, you know the First Amendment, but also just in terms of using their time and resources in responding to these things that, in my experience, are often fishing expeditions in which uh, somebody seeking some kind of uh, you know, high-profile person to come in and testify about about their issue. And uh, so while there are situations maybe where the testimony is needed, you know, maybe a jailhouse confession or something like that, I think a lot of these uh, should be covered under a, a reporter's privilege and uh, would, would result in, uh, you know, a better situation for everybody. What kind of protections exist for reporters in the states where there are no shield laws? Well, you uh, sometimes get a constitutional protection, either from the First, Am uh, First Amendment and the Bill of Rights in the federal constitution or maybe in the state constitution. Um, as I alluded to, you have a common law privilege that some courts have found uh, that might be reflected in the rules of evidence uh, under Rule 501 of the federal rules of evidence. Um, otherwise, you're sort of just left clamoring for whatever you can find. I know in Utah, we've actually advanced several trial court decisions uh, that might not have mandatory precedential value in terms of a, another trial court, but maybe tried to use those things persuasively to say, look, the Utah Supreme Court has not considered this, but several trial judges have applied a privilege, and, and you should do the same thing. Well, the, you know, the Brandsburg case seemed to say that uh, fairly clearly, I guess, that, that there is uh, no claim of privilege in a, in a grand jury proceeding, and, and that's always made me wonder why... Uh, people fought, uh, why the New York Times in particular fought this case and, and why Judith Miller fought this case so uh, so vehemently because, I mean, it seemed it seemed to be a perfect uh, candidate for the for the uh, maxim of bad cases make bad law. Um, Mark, do you have any thoughts on, on whether this was, you know, whether the New York Times did the right thing in, in letting Judith Miller go to jail in this case and, and, and fighting this? Well, sure. I think um, that that brings up the whole other realm of these sorts of uh, these, these sorts of battles. You have you have the legal arguments that are are not always easy to make, especially in, in federal court or in states without shield laws. But then you have the tactical decisions that that good media lawyers know how to to make and and know how to work out deals that avoid a conflict. And unfortunately, in this case, uh, and we don't. I don't think any of us would know for sure if it was because of the client, Judith Miller and the Times, or or because of the lawyers' decisions, but they ran smack into the buzzsaw, and and that, and as you say, that that made for some. While it may not have made new bad law, it certainly solidified bad law, and and uh, all of us wish. I think I'll speak for myself. I wish that her her lawyers had. Had uh, 
figured out a way to finesse this as so many other lawyers for so many other media witnesses did in this very unfortunate case. Ed, I wanted to uh, hear more about the research that you've done uh, in terms of the uh, the Chief Justices and, and how they've reflected on, on, on these issues. Uh, could you fill us in a little bit more on that? Sure. And uh, basically what we did, as you referred to earlier, we went back and chose the First Amendment cases over the last, well, really about the last 50 years in the Supreme Court and uh, reviewed in particular the opinions in which the justices themselves wrote and uh, this is probably not too surprising to many of your listeners, but Chief Justice Rehnquist was the least protective of individual or minority speech in these cases when compared to Chief Justice Berger and Chief Justice Warren. Uh, as you said, Chief Justice Rehnquist's view was very much a majoritarian view. Uh, in other words, he supported the will of the majority and the right of the majority to decide how society should be governed. And so when that will of the majority was contradicted by an individual or a minority protester or a certain point of view, he tended to uh, favor that majority view. I think the uh, results, as I said, are probably not too surprising, but in a lot of ways what we found, I think, was useful and helpful in just confirming the extent to which he, he did this. Uh, he supported minority views in our conclusions about uh, 20% of the time, and uh, he also really built a uh, doctrine of government or majority speech in which I think he viewed himself as protecting speech in a lot of these cases, but just not the minority viewpoint that was being expressed. He he viewed his role as, again, sort of supporting the will of the majority to express its own message. And so when the government, for example, wants to express a message about whatever topic it wants to speak on, he thinks uh, that the government or he thought that the government should be able to do that. And I think we, we've seen that uh, build over the last few decades and uh, really culminate in 2005 in a case in which the court explicitly said when the government speaks, uh, other individuals cannot challenge that government conduct on the basis of the First Amendment. Well, this question may be a little bit off topic, Professor Carter, but yesterday Justice Kennedy went to Congress and said, we don't want televisions in the United, in the Supreme Court. How does that square up with free speech and the right of media access? Sure. That's a great question. It is a, a current issue, as uh, I'm sure you're aware, Senator Specter has has uh, made some noise and made some proposals about televising Supreme Court uh, oral arguments. And I think one of the arguments is, well, if the justices are going to be on television all the time anyway, you know, whether they're giving a speech somewhere or appearing at a law school somewhere or something like that, then you know, what's the reason to keep the oral arguments uh in secret, so to speak. I mean, it is an open courtroom, but certainly most of us don't travel to Washington, D.C. to see the oral arguments. I think it's an interesting issue. I, I'm not sure that uh, the justification for not televising Supreme Court hearings uh, you know, holds up. I, I know the justices are concerned about the sound bites that will appear on TV and how that will uh, sort of uh, result in certain stereotypes and not give a full context of the case. But, uh, you know, I, I think in our current media culture, that's uh, just sort of what you have to live with. And so I'll be interested to see where this goes. And, uh, you know, I'm interested in Professor Obi's thoughts on this as well. He's uh, perhaps got some more insightful ideas about, about what this would mean. Well, I, don't, I doubt they're more insightful, but I, but I, I, I agree with you that um, the, uh, the Spectre proposal is, hinges on a pretty good political argument, which is 
you guys are being very public lately, and and you've always worried about uh, losing your anonymity. Well, you've you've given it away. Um, but I think it's it's really uh, it's really indefensible how the Supreme Court has handled this question for so long. It, it, it's one thing to argue about the effect on a jury. Uh, even even there, I have you know a media friendly answer, but but I can I can see the argument. But here it's just plain silly to to ban cameras from oral arguments, and and it's also a, a bit of a conceit to think that there would be a whole lot of broadcast interest in oral arguments more than once or twice a year. So uh, I, I just think that the. There's a lot of wasted breath on this uh, this question when the Supreme Court should just do the right thing and let the public that wants to see this, especially on C-SPAN, which has really dedicated itself to covering the law pretty thoroughly, let the public see what its high court is doing. It's interesting. I saw uh, uh, Justice Kennedy speak uh, a couple months ago, and he, he addressed this issue uh, to a, a small group, uh, small group of lawyers and media people. And uh, what he said then was that his his fear of, of cameras in the court is is that cameras would disturb the 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 interplay among the justices on the bench. That uh, he would fear that the justices would begin to play to the camera rather than play to the to the law, so to speak. Uh, I thought that was a, an interesting reason to keep cameras out of the court. Uh, we have to take a short break. Uh, please stay with us, and we will be back in about sixty seconds. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And become a member. It's free. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs. J. Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at legalline.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. Did you know that Legal Talk Network podcasts are also available as CLE? Visit law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. 
The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Today we're discussing the Libby trial and... uh, uh, Freedom of the Press. Uh, joining us is Ed Carter, an assistant professor of communications at Brigham Young University, and Mark Obi, director of the Carnegie Legal Reporting Program at the Newhouse School and a former colleague of mine at American Lawyer Media. Well, let's look at the uh, last couple of issues about the uh, Libby trial. Let's assume that he gets convicted. Uh, do you think the Supreme Court would take up his case after it, uh, a circuit court appeal? Well, I could chime in on that. I certainly wouldn't pretend to predict what the Supreme Court would do. Uh, you know, out of, I think, 9,000 petitions for certiorari they get every year, they've been accepting somewhere around 70 or 75 cases. So it certainly is not a great uh, you know, possibility just from the raw numbers. Uh, I think it would depend really on the um, the issues that would be advanced in a petition for certiorari. I mean, I don't necessarily see and I haven't been at the trial, uh, you know, observing this, but I, based on what I've read, I haven't necessarily seen any particularly unique legal issues that would have to be decided by the court. It seems like a pretty straightforward application of, uh, you know, perjury statutes to me. Well, more to the point, I mean, what's what would be the impact? I mean, does the outcome of this trial matter in terms of the, the impact of this trial on the journalism profession? Well, I think that uh, with a lot of these issues, uh, that we have to really sell this as not just a media issue. And and when I say sell this, I mean not being disingenuous, but I mean in, in reality a lot of these topics do affect people broadly. I mean, take the Reporter's Shield Law, for example. I don't see that as just a reporter's issue. I mean, I think that the interests we're trying to serve are, are greater interests in facilitating democracy by allowing information to get out into the marketplace of ideas. And so I think everyone has a stake in this. Uh, you know, the same thing would go for uh, the uh, televising of the Supreme Court. I mean, this is not just an issue for journalists to make their jobs easier or somehow give them a special privilege that other people don't have. This is for the benefit of society generally. Well, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, but to the extent that um, uh, this uh, trial has, I'm not sure what it's done to to the whole process of, of, of uh, confidentiality of sources and, and to journalist shield. Uh, I mean, have... Are we gonna are we gonna come out of this trial possibly closer to a federal shield law, farther away from a federal shield law? Uh, will there be a greater understanding of the journalist privilege? Will there be more confusion about it? Mark, what's your thought on that? Well, I think the uh, the downside has already occurred. The uh, as we used to say in Texas, it's all over but the crying. Um, to see a parade of witnesses testify for either side and to testify at the grand jury was. Uh, um, was disturbing to those of us who want uh, to see an independent press. The um, I'm not sure how it advances or inhibits the uh, shield law debate, which has, and this is certainly not the first time a federal shield law has been debated. And I, 
I agree with Professor uh, Carter that that this is this is in the public interest. It isn't just a media interest, but that's tough. That's a tough sell because pe- people see, especially the Washington media, as an elite uh, cadre of self-interested preeners, <laughs> and and that and this trial didn't help dispel that. And 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 we have to. Uh, we have a long way to go to convince a majority of uh, Congress that this is a uh, that this would, would would advance justice. Unfortunately, well, again, I, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, you know, bad cases make bad law. But uh, are there, you know, what are, what are the what are the stellar examples? I mean, Watergate seems to come to mind as as a, you know a, a, an example of of uh, uh, a, a confidential sources serving the public good. Are there any number of corporate uh, examples? Um, you know, this the, the, what's playing out in this trial is is kind of a. I mean, the problem with it is it seems to be a case of the politicians manipulating the journalists more than the journalists manipulating the politicians, uh, and I think that's why it has such a sour image. Well, I I would agree with that, and I I maybe throw the Pentagon Papers case into the other example that you mentioned. I mean, certainly the Daniel Ellsberg leaking of the documents to the New York Times and the Washington Post is and is is an example as well. I would say, though, that I think one thing this trial has demonstrated in in one aspect is that uh, new media are alive and well. I was just reading a New York Times report late last night about this blog, FireDogLake.com. Maybe some of you are familiar with this, but uh, this is really an innovative uh, blogging site dedicated to the Libby trial, and uh, they've covered it you know, very well. And so while it's not maybe the mainstream media uh, cause being advanced. I think it's an example of how we are seeing technological innovations that are advancing, I think, the cause of dissemination of information. Well, apparently there are two bloggers who are going to be having seats or have seats at the Libby trial. Uh, and there's been some noise that this is the first time. I don't think it is the first time. There's been some other uh, situations where bloggers have sat through trials and certainly uh, covered instances like that. But what's your take on now having uh, an instantaneous view of uh, the proceedings at the trial. I'll, I'll jump in there. I just blogged about this moments ago, um, blogging about blogging about trials, I guess. Uh, I think it's a huge positive. I agree with Professor Carter that, uh, that, that uh, having more voices, more perspectives on a trial uh, in, and done in, in the speed, with the speed that a blog can bring to it is is only good. There's, there's there's a lot of depth. I've looked at a lot of the different blogs that are covering, that have covered this trial, and the the uh, the detail is is amazing. It's so much more nuanced than what a daily newspaper, even a top-notch daily newspaper, can do. But what I think uh, we have to remember is, when you're reading a lot of these blogs, you're drinking from a fire hose. You cannot, you you can't filter it out. Nobody's doing that job for you, and 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 I don't think this is this is an elite product for people who are really into a particular case or really into the law. It is not for the for the mainstream. It is not a, a mass media product. And and I think that um, we, we hear a lot of bad things about uh, the job that daily newspapers do. But one thing they do very well is make complicated things accessible to the average person, and that's not what these blogs are doing. 
Well, have blogs yet found their mark? I mean, think back to some of the major trials that have been covered by newspapers that have garnered interest that haven't been covered by bloggers. I mean, obviously, because of time, the Lindbergh trial was one. Uh, Michael Jackson's trial was another. There are there are trials that we have yet to see that will capture the national interest that may very well do or take a, a fire hose approach. What What are your thoughts about that? I, I think that. For the people who want uh, a huge amount of detail, this is a wonderful, wonderful uh, advance, uh, and they will get much more than they could from traditional reports. But, uh, but for the 98% of the rest of the population, um, it, it, we, we have to preserve the resources that daily newspapers uh, and, to some extent, radio bring to these trials. Uh, because they're the only ones who can produce mass consumption versions of what the bloggers are doing. We are just about out of time. Uh, I want to give each of you an opportunity to give final thoughts and to uh, tell our listeners where they can find out more uh, about your work. Uh, so, Ed Carter, let's start with you. Sure. I think uh, I would just like to leave with the idea that while we sometimes come across maybe as crying wolf a lot and uh, and complaining. I do think that we have to find hope and optimism where we can and that there are good signs out there in terms of, of media and law. And I look at Chief Justice Rehnquist, you know, who will surprise you once in a while. I mean, he wrote the opinion in Hustler versus Falwell, which was a very speech-protective uh, opinion. And so uh, I think that there are some signs of uh, of good things. And if any of your listeners would like to contact me, I'd be happy to uh, discuss these things with them and provide any other information I can. They can reach me at ed underscore carter at byu.edu. And is your study available online? or? It is uh, through the journalist. Uh, the journal is called the journal- Journalism and Mass Communication Quarterly. It's uh, generally available on uh, electronic databases, uh, EBSCO and ProQuest and that kind of thing. But I can certainly facilitate that if anybody would like to read a copy. Just please get in touch with me. And Professor Obi, your final thoughts and your contact information and perhaps your blog as well. Sure. I, uh, I think that, uh, as always, we in the media have a PR problem, and, and we, need to let, we need to remind the public of the important stories that they would not hear without the kind of reporting that uh, requires legal protection. And, and anonymous sources, while they're, they're distasteful, are, uh, uh, make the world go round when it comes to sensitive watchdog journalism, uh, keeping an eye on our government. So I hope that we'll all, we'll all remind readers what, uh, what's at stake. Um, I blog about legal journalism at uh, newhouse.syr.edu slash legal. And the name of my blog is Lawbeat. And just a footnote, any listeners who are, who are interested in more about these issues, uh, Frontline uh, PBS documentary series is currently running a four-part series called News War uh, uh, that uh, just began this week and uh, promises to explore many of these issues in, in uh, much more detail. Well, thank you very much to our guests. Uh, appreciate your time and participation. Thank you. And Craig, uh, thanks uh, again for uh, being part of this with me and look forward to talking to you again next week. Look forward to it as well and hopefully we won't ever have to use that reporter's shield. Not on this show. 
Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and Jake Craig Williams. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.